I did a short presentation years ago, probably 10 years ago or better now, and it was titled, You Can Never Beat Mom's Meatloaf. And the idea behind it was that whether your family was full of great cooks or not, there's something in pretty much everybody's memory as a kid that they just stick to, you know, when you think of comfort food. And of course, across different cultures, those things are different. Welcome to the Technobiotic Podcast, Episode 2. Join us on our journey to find humanity among technology, with your hosts, Laura Araujo, Matt Drew, and Shane Carlson, with special guest Clint Jolly. Hello, welcome to the Technobiotic Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Shane Carlson. I'm joined today by my fellow hosts, Matt Drew and Laura Araujo. Welcome, guys. Howdy, howdy. Hey How's everybody doing? Great. All good. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty interesting. This podcast thing is starting to feel kind of real, right? We've gotten out there, we recorded an episode, and we shared it with people. And the funny thing is, is people are listening to it. It's a little weird. So I'm really, really kind of happy with the way things are going. And I really appreciate you guys kind of jumping on this crazy journey with me here and having fun talking to really cool people about really awesome things. Yeah, and my mom likes it too, so we're off to a good start. See, that is the only <laughs> metric that counts. <laughs> well, and, and the thing, like, she gets it. That that I think is is for me, in terms of a, a success metric, that's huge. Like, my mom listened to it and and she gets it, and she's like, "Wow, that's pretty interesting." It's like, "All right, we're off to a solid start." Then, giddy up, let's go. <laughs> I've made a very fine career out of taking complex technology and explaining it in ways that just about everybody can understand. There is quite an appetite to simplify technology and get it to a point where it actually means something to people. It isn't just this mysterious black box. Laura, I know you recently went on a vacation. How did that go? Oh, it was great. It was certainly uh, it was certainly in the realm of simplicity. Simple, minimal, in the middle of the Yucatan jungle. We did use our phones a little bit, but it was really nice to just unplug and to really cut your day down to the bare bones. Which, I mean, when you're on vacation, naturally you're, you know, it's a totally different thing than your day-to-day life, less working. But it was just really fascinating to have a reset of just how your brain is functioning on a full day level and to try to rewire how, when we come back into our day-to-day life, how we can rewire our temptations that our mind has and how that can affect our work. So simplifying, basically. (laughs) Uh, You know, it's funny you mentioned simplification and I I mentioned it earlier. I've, I've been here in Las Vegas this week with my employer going through what we call our annual sales kickoff. None of that's really important, but some of the messaging throughout the week from from our leadership were some things that I kind of keyed on to. The one that that came up that really kind of stuck in my head, and and I've always loved this quote, even though it's typically wrongly attributed to Leonardo da Vinci. Actually, I think I looked at the 
the etymology of the word or of the quote, and it was actually tracked back to a woman in the 1800s. Leave it to the internet to steal a decent quote from a woman and attribute it to some man who had nothing to do with it. But the quote itself is the important part here, and it's that simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. And for me, that's a very powerful phrase. Human beings, by nature, is we want to make things more complex than they necessarily need to be, probably more often than not for our own egos to say, look at this wonderfully monstrous thing that I created and look what it is capable of doing. But at the end of the day, it ends up being unpractical and unusable. You guys watch The Simpsons at all over the years? Yes. Okay. Laura? I know you didn't have a lot of television. We talked about this last time. (laughs) You know, I have, I have not. I, I, I remember that I saw it, like I saw it on TV once and then like my mom quickly turned the channel because I wasn't allowed to watch it. But I do know uh, someone who writes for the Simpsons. Uh, She's one of my other yoga private clients before she moved to LA. That is not the same thing as watching the Simpsons, but I will give you credit for the star connection. (laughs) All right. All right. (laughs) One of the things that, always sticks with me is the episode where Homer gets to design a car (laughs) and the ultimate car he ends up designing is this very odd Pope mobile looking thing that had all of these features that individually seemed amazing. It would serve you a beer. It would do all these things. It puts you in this protective bubble, but at the end of the day, it wasn't usable for its intended function, which was a car. I see this a lot, especially in the in the enterprise technology space, where we tend to overcomplicate, we tend to overbuild, and more often than not, the simplest solutions are often not only the most elegant, but they're the ones that people enjoy the experience with the most. They're the experience that people gravitate towards, they're the ones they use, and they're the ones they appreciate most of their life. That's one of the things that stuck with me this week around that entire concept of, of simplicity being sophisticated and and i wholeheartedly agree with that yeah good occam's razor and it it, you know it it seems like they're more of a trend i think out there not just in tech but in general i think people are coming to understand that and identify that and it seems like things that were going in the direction of complexity and confusion are starting to get kind of pulled in and sort of re-simplified again. So I hope that trend continues because if it doesn't, it's just going to get to the point where it's all meaningless and it's all useless because there are so many different iterations of the same thing. They're all just kind of a little bit different color, but depending on who's using what platform is, is going to impact its usefulness. And I hope that that trend towards simplification continues because as a tech user and someone who is paying more attention to it, uh, that definitely makes the future a little bit more palatable and easier to navigate. Exactly. The other piece this week that really stood out to me is something, and it kind of ties into what we talked about in a previous episode around AI and where AI is going and evolving. And one of the tests that a lot of the AI developers have been using to get to natural language processing, natural language understanding to where computers can understand people when they speak. Because as human beings, especially in the English language, we can say and phrase things in such a way that are very confusing. And for us, it's natural, it's normal, it's our our speech patterns, it's how we talk, it's how we work, it's how we understand things. 
But for a computer who operates off a set of logic, sometimes it can be very, very confusing. And one of the key statements that they typically use to test how well an AI is functioning with natural language processing and natural language understanding is this sentence that says, Paris Hilton stayed at the Paris Hilton. And for us, we understand the context of that immediately. We understand that the first part of that sentence is referring to a subject, a human person, Paris Hilton, who we know by name in many cases, for good or for bad. And the second piece we know, they're specifically talking about the Hilton Hotel in the city of Paris, France, because we have context that we can refer to to understand the way this works. And we also have this ability to, to say, in any other context, this wouldn't work. Why would a hotel stay at a hotel? Or why would a person stay inside a person? We won't get into that. There's whole lots of reasons why people claim they... <laughs> but anyway, carry God, we're finally hitting a point of progression in some of this language. And one of the gentlemen who is what I would call a practical futurist within my employer's organization, gentleman by the name of Dave Wright, Dave is someone who has been thinking about the future for a long time. So he goes out and he speaks at a lot of digital transformation, futurist technologies. He's often a keynote speaker. And he, he was relaying a story that he was recently in Europe at a conference and had to give a talk on AI, where AI is progressing and natural language processing, natural language understanding, and the practical applications of that in business in the future in 5, 10, 15 years. And afterwards, he said, it, he said a, a guy ran up to him and said, hey, can you take a look at my app? I want to show you something. And he said, absolutely, you know, this happens all the time. And the guy says, you know, give me a subject. And so he gives him a subject, and he goes out to Wikipedia, pulls the Wikipedia page, drops the link into the, the app, and said, now ask it a question about the subject. And he was able to ask it questions about the, the subject matter, and the AI was able to give him answers. And it was very contextual. It's, I forget what his example specifically was, but it was around some topic matter. And he, you know, well, what is this? Where is it located? And the thing was able to process and give him answers. And he was very impressed by that. And the guy said, now watch this. And he, gave, he fed it the Paris Hilton, stayed at the Paris Hilton statement. And he said, now ask it a question. He said, who is Paris Hilton? Give some context. Paris Hilton is a former reality TV star, you know, started pulling information that it was able to gather about who Paris Hilton was. Well, where did Paris Hilton stay? Paris Hilton stayed at the Paris Hilton. What is the Paris Hilton? The Paris Hilton is a hotel in the Hilton family of hotels in the city of Paris. So it was, it was starting to tackle this. And for me, this is exciting because we're finally getting a point where all of this research, all of this effort has gone into building out this capability. And we're starting to tackle some of these key challenges that are preventing us from making that technology more applicable in our day-to-day -day lives. And this kind of goes back to what we were saying last week about the neons. Uh, it, it, how, far, how far are we going to take the tech? I mean, is it cool on the surface? Yeah. Is it impressive? Yeah. How useful is it going to be? How, how are we designing the evolution of that tech? And at what point, I mean, not, not to go all Terminator on it, <laughs> but at what point do we say, okay, enough is enough. Like really kind of what, what's, what, what are the outer limits of that? Pardon the pun. Um, but, but where, 
where is that going to go? How is it going to be useful? What what are the risks and what is the potential downside of that? And we don't know and we're not going to know until we get there, right? Exactly. And that now now you're going to force me to put a link in the show notes to The Outer Limits so uh, people actually understand the reference. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not that old, am I? <laughs> yes, you are. And so am I. The best part of this whole story that, that I, I didn't finish telling is Dave Wright asked the guy, he's like, oh, that, you know, how did you build this? And he, the guy says, oh, well, you know, I, I was a founder of a company uh, that I ended up, you know, selling over the years. He's like, oh, you know, it's like, oh what, what, what was the technology? Well, it was called this, but ultimately it's been renamed to Alexa. Oh, geez. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, and Dave looks at him and says, you should probably lead with that. hi i'm so and so i invented alexa here's my app well that's what it sounded like to me and like to me so charlie loves the alexa and we have one in literally every corner of every room of our house and to me it's just superfluous and it's it's creepy and it's kind of like what we were talking about last last week with the neon you know i would prefer just to like be able to flip the switch myself to you know control if i want light or not but it's like Alexa is programming our whole our whole universe and it's kind of uh, it's kind of bizarre because when you go somewhere else and they don't have an Alexa it's like it plays with your mind and like you're you're accustomed to having uh, this other thing helping to facilitate your day-to-day existence like walking into a room and, and yelling at the room to turn the lights on and nothing happens yeah you're so <laughs> slubbing it <laughs> I keep thinking of the meme, uh, and it's it's hilarious, but it's so true. It's like you see 50 years ago, it's like, hey, you know, be quiet. Big Brother might be listening. And then fast forward to today, and it's like, hey, Big Brother, order me a pizza. Yeah. <laughs> Big, Brother, Big Brother has been installed in every room of your house, and you're glad to have it. <laughs> yep. Speaking of things we're glad to have, our guest this week. We've got an amazing guest lined up for this week. His name is Clint Jolly. Clint, welcome. Good morning. Thanks for having me. No problem. Glad glad you're here. Glad we we're finally able to uh, get you, get you on and uh, have an excuse for you and I to, to to do something other than text each other about how we're going to get together and, and drink whiskey. <laughs> cool. <laughs> Let me introduce you guys to Clint. So Clint, I've known. I was just trying to figure this out the other day. It's been at least uh, I want to say twelve, almost thirteen years now, and we were introduced in the most unlikely of places. I won't go into the ba- that backstory, but one of the you know, Clint. When I first met him, he was a, a business owner and working in the meat industry and building out a very uh, great reputation as a, a, a very innovative chef. And along the way, he went on to become someone who was recognized on the national and international stages as uh, an expert in his field, a master of his craft, if you will. But being the humble guy that he is, uh, he's not a big fan of phrases like celebrity chef or yeah, things like that. I knew you were going to put that in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I got to give you credit, right? It's it's not everyone who uh, who who you know throws off the the monikers that society adopts and you For know sure. uh, heralds it. And he's definitely someone who, uh, in my mind, is a, a natural storyteller. And in the the last ten years plus that I've that I've watched him and and gotten to know him as as a friend. It, the evolution of turning into this amazing, not only craftsman within his trade, but a, a wonderful storyteller who has really has a sensitivity to 
the connections that comes through the culture of food across cultures all around the world. And I think this is something that, that's amazing. And, and recently, technology, I think, has had a huge impact on bringing us all together around the world, specifically around food and food culture and why people's social cultures are so intrinsically connected to the food that, that is a part of that. So talk a little bit about you know, how you feel the effect uh, that technology has on, ha, had on food recently. Absolutely. I think the first and simplest thing that it's done is allowed sharing of things. I mean, if you look at Instagram pages nowadays, even people that aren't really known for food are sharing pictures of meals and that sort of thing. So it's been, you know, a great boost for a lot of parts of the food industry. And keep in mind when I'm talking about food industry, I'm talking about, uh, you know, the restaurant world and the chef perspective there. So just that ability to share so quickly and people creating content and consuming it so quickly has elevated the conversation for sure and made the talk about food such a big part of everybody's daily life. Of course, that comes with its downfalls, as we kind of chatted about, and I know we'll get into how, uh, you know, that access and communication kind of has some negative effects too, but I would say that's the biggest thing. Yeah, let's get into that a little bit. You know, we, we talked about the good. People get exposure to, to new places, to cool places, mm -hmm. to unique concepts. We get to know the people that are making our food. And, you know, it, it tends to engender a lot of loyalty uh, as well as this connectedness to these businesses. But it also has that, that bad side uh, wherein, you know, people by nature are fickle. If we are presented with a plethora of choices, one of two things happen, we get overwhelmed and we either refuse to make a choice and we go with the things that are our favorites, or we keep just picking the new thing. And even though we love these other things that we've tried, because we have so many choices and we're constantly looking at the new thing, we leave behind those, those other things that we love because we assume that because we love them and other people love them, they'll always be there when we want to mm -hmm. visit them. But the reality is for chefs and small business owners, they need that repeat business. They go out of their way to earn that repeat business, and there's a lot of things that can affect that. Talk about that a little bit, if you would. I would say the first thing that came to mind when you're talking about things that we love, I did a short presentation years ago, probably 10 years ago or better now, and it was titled, You Can Never Beat Mom's Meatloaf. And the idea behind it was that whether your family was full of great cooks or not, there's something in pretty much everybody's memory as a kid that they just stick to, you know, when you think of comfort food. And of course, across different cultures, those things are different. People's opinion on food kind of starts with what they grew up eating, you know, and it kind of morphs from there. So I think that concept of your favorites, you're never going to find something that brings back that memory, like mom's meatloaf did, for instance. And um, I think technology or the... Uh, the amount, the, like you said, the plethora of choices out there now kind of results in us forgetting about that, that it doesn't have to be fancy or new or different, that you can just have a really simple, awesome meal and enjoy it. Definitely. Uh, the, my mom didn't make, she didn't really make meatloaf. Uh, she made this steamed spinach with an excessive amount of garlic in it. Um, mm. And she steamed it until it was like so wilted that kind of just like melted through the fork when you tried to pick it up. Uh, so I had a little bit of PTSD from her cooking 
which transformed into my own passion for cooking, which may be weird. I absolutely agree when you're talking about the idea of simplicity coming back to the same theme, simplicity being sometimes the most powerful and uh, and effective way of cooking. We love Jean-Georges and David Boulay, and they're wonderful chefs, but uh, my favorite meal in the city here, we live in New York City, and there's obviously innumerable options for food. There's this amazing dish of mussels that they have at this speakeasy and uh, at, at a place called The Office in, in uh, mm-hmm. around 59th Street. And so simple, so well prepared. The au is perfect. It's not, it doesn't have the overpowering garlic like my mom, like I remember on the spinach that my mom made, but it was, it's just so perfectly balanced. And to me, that whole idea of the balance, whether it's, you know, within a dish or within a meal or within kind of the experience that you have at a restaurant when you're, you know, if you have the luxury of stealing away the chef from the kitchen to have a conversation with him, that whole experience and the whole idea of the balance uh, and that, that story that, that lives within that balance to me is so powerful. You were talking a little bit about how you are a storyteller. I know Shane, you were regaling that he was a great storyteller and how every meal has a story, which I totally agree with, but I'm curious to hear uh, your favorite story, your favorite, uh, a your, your relationship and understanding of that uh, how you bring out stories within your food, but also what is your favorite uh, story to tell while you're cooking, uh, as in the actual food? What is your favorite way to tell a story while you're cooking? Interesting question. So yeah, with the the storytelling part of kind of what I found and um, trying to hone my passion in around that is you can share pictures, you can share recipes, and all that, but you can't really share emotions, right? right. And the, the storytelling, like when you're mentioning those muscles and you compared it to, you know, it brings back memories of your mom's, your mom's spinach dish, right? So that's something that you can't really, you can only transfer those thoughts or those emotions through telling a story. So when it comes to me designing something, when I was in the catering business for, well, for about 25 years, but for the last 10 of those, it was really about, I did a lot of wedding business Mm. and I was lucky enough to have a lot of clients from around the country and some from around the world that came to the beautiful Tahoe area, right? Mm. So what I, what I tried to do is sit down and we would have conversations about anything and everything but food for an hour when I was working with these clients. What I realized, it was definitely unexpected from them because they thought they were going to come in and we're going to talk about, you know, do we want tri-tip or prime rib today? And what I realized is there's so many connections that are made over a meal because it increases endorphins. You get a dopamine rush when you're eating something tasty, right? And it opens up neural pathways that create those memories. The visceralness of food cements those memories in such a way that, you know, when you look back across your life, so many of the events that you associate with certain times in, in your life are almost always centered around food. And to me, that's that's truly amazing. But, you know, I'm a, I'm a rather, rather stout guy who obviously enjoys his food and drink. Maybe it's just me. 
I don't know, Shane. <laughs> I'm about 130, and I absolutely agree. <laughs> We're, we're, we're not going to get into the, the vacation tacos, Laura. <laughs> I do think, in my experience, it's a pretty universal thing, you know. Going back to that mom's meatloaf idea, everybody has some kind of a memory that they're tied. So as far as telling a story, I think that those stories kind of morph. They The food is kind of what brings everybody to the table, to, for lack of a better term for it. To, for those shared memories, right? And as Shane said, it kind of anchors it. So it provides a very common conduit. Everybody needs to eat. Majority of people enjoy eating something new and different or tasty, right? And um, when you're talking about bringing cultures together, I've been lucky enough to travel a decent amount. And I could sit in a restaurant in Hanoi and eat a bowl of soup across from, you know, at like a group table across from someone that we have zero... Uh, or we have a big language barrier, right? Zero in common there, but we're both enjoying a meal and just through simple gestures and smiles, you create a connection around that. And I think that's pretty powerful. There's another side to it though. It's uh, coming from the perspective of someone who has never been trained. I love to cook uh, and I try to mix things up. Um, I like to integrate different flavors. I like to experiment with things. Uh, and again, not necessarily coming from any training, but just kind of a general understanding of of how to combine flavors. And one of the things, and this it actually makes sense. This is this as we're talking about this, I started kind of drawing some connections. The whole food porn movement, <laughs> like the hashtag food porn, it drives you nuts because you see this stuff and you're like, I mean, it seems so simple, right? But but you try mm -hmm. to create it and it just it just falls flat. And I understand like practice makes perfect and have to study how different ingredients interact with each other and how to combine them for um, a different outcome. But it's like it makes sense why why uh, on one hand it, it has the the moniker of food porn because it's like it's like learning to have sex by watching porn. It's not realistic. <laughs> You know, it's like, no, that's okay. First of all, it's, it's leave it, leave it to Matt to, you know, make it make, have, make me have to mark this as our first explicit episode. Uh. <laughs> well, but, I mean, but it makes sense. You know, it's like, right. it's like you almost take it for granted because you see it so much that that kind of changes your baseline. That raises the bar a little bit. It's like, oh, well, if I'm not doing that, then I, I must be doing something wrong and you're not necessarily. It's just that your perspective on it and the context that you're associating with uh, with food is changed. It's different and and it's not necessarily a reflection of reality. I would say absolutely. And that's one of the downsides of that proliferation of sharing food um, because it doesn't include the the emotional side and the story and the context, as you said, Matt. And I could take it further, but I don't think I need to. <laughs> no, this, this is something I've been talking to people a lot about. And I think all of the folks that are in the creative world, and I would definitely put chefs into the creative category, is people at large underestimate the amount of mastery it takes to create things and to create good things and to create good things consistently and we undervalue people who are masters of their craft, whether it's your chef, whether it's your artist, whether it's your photographer, whether it's your person who does music, Laura. 
uh, in sings is people just assume that because you do this thing that you know it's your job to share this thing with the world and help other people achieve the same level of mastery without the 10,000 plus hours that it takes to achieve that mastery you know for every beautiful dish you see uh, that takes you 15 minutes to consume there are hours and hours and hours of planning, of learning, of teaching, of mastering the skill to produce that 15-minute experience. And I think it is something that is far underappreciated and certainly undervalued in our society because we want that experience that comes with all of that work, you know, with a 25% off two-for-one coupon. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So, so how does that feel, Clint, as a creator, to have to constantly defend the value of, of what you do? Well, um, it's an interesting struggle that every chef I know goes through. And back to, you know, keeping it simple. And I think it's pervasive across any creator or artist that when you, when you jump into creating art, a lot of people just start adding more and more and more, right? You make something super complicated because that's what you think needs to be done to make it interesting. And then as you refine those skills, uh, whether it's cooking or painting, you really start stripping away everything that doesn't matter. Back to the Occam's razor theory, right? You start stripping away everything that doesn't matter just to, to highlight and show off what does. That's definitely something that, you know, the food porn movement, is, uh, as Matt said, it kind of creates an environment for consumers that they're, you know, they're looking for something new and interesting and bigger and better and Instagrammable, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that experience is good. And it doesn't translate that experience from the chef to the plate always. Yeah. And, and, and when the potential quality of an Instagram shot of what you're having for dinner plays into whether or not I mean, if, if it negatively impacts your perception of it, then that's completely taking something out of context and it's associating a context with it that doesn't necessarily need to be there. It's like, no, does it taste delicious? That's not something you can convey uh, through a picture on social media. Correct. But as, as the end consumer, if part of what you value about your dish is how well it's going to, to photograph on Instagram, then, you know, maybe maybe your uh, your reality is a little bit skewed you know that brings up an interesting thing so some of the some of the social media posts and I Clint I know you've you you have your own feelings about social media and you know and you've got some reflection I'll ask you about that a little later but one of the things I've always appreciated about uh, social media I've got a lot of friends who are chefs uh, you know thankfully through some of the connections I've made and Clint being one of them uh, but what I love watching is kind of the what do chefs eat, mm. right? Because what chefs cook for other people isn't always what chefs eat. And, you know, I always love the the documentaries where you show the these back alley food joints at 2 a.m. where after all the service workers get off, the places that chefs go to eat with other chefs and the food that chefs who cook for chefs serve. And, Clint, I remember a couple of your posts of, you know, this is what chefs eat, and it's right. the simplest 
heartiest, just beautiful food paired with a wonderful wine, which speaking of wine, I still have a case of wine glasses for you from the time I broke the wine glasses at your party. <laughs> That's funny. They're in my garage. They've been there for seven years now. I'll get them to you. Uh, but, but talk a little bit about, you know, what what is it that chefs eat and how do chefs, I mean, because this is kind of the secret underground handshake of, of, the, of the chef world that, you know, the rest of us are just starting to get a little bit of a peek at. You know, when chefs get together and eat, what do they eat? And how do you guys connect with each other? You nailed it with simple. Most chefs that I work with or have worked with over the years, it's it's a grilled cheese sandwich. It's a bowl of cereal, chicken soup, something like that. I think chefs are very much driven by cravings. So when you have the the ability to create anything, you start getting, I don't know, you start getting cravings and you start getting overwhelmed. And after you spend 10 hours in a day in a kitchen, making all this beautiful food for other people, the last thing you want to do is eat what you've been cooking all day. So they tend, chefs tend to go to those, like you said, the back alley places late at night, go down to a taco shop, grab a plate of super, super simple tacos, a bowl of pho, whatever it may be, but it's way simpler and easier than most people would imagine, I think. And speaking of, you know, Instagram, if you go on and search for the hashtag, what chefs eat, it comes up with all kinds of interesting things that kind of follow that pretty simple food. Yeah, that's, that's the hashtag I jump on every once in a while. And, uh, you know, to, to me, it's, that's the real piece of it, right? That's the, you know, I'm going to get great authentic flavors. I'm going to get great things. And those are the type of places I like to seek out when I travel, you know, be mm -hmm. traveling so much. I I think 40 weeks last year out of 52. And uh, every time I'm in a city, you know, I'm going to look, I'm going to reach out and figure out, you know, don't take me to the Yelp thing that everybody likes right now. Take me to the place where, you know, I can get an authentic experience by people who, you know, put passion into their craft and it shows in the food. And it's, again, it's almost always the simple flavors, the simple foods that just leave you with an amazing memory. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I I absolutely agree myself. Uh, we get, we were talking about Mexico a little bit, and Charlie and I, my husband and I, we were we took a bike tour around Mexico City, um, and we went to all of these little tiny taco shops. And simplicity again is the term. No fancy schmancy anything, just really basic flavors slightly different, slightly, you know, flavors that we don't typically get in New York City. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't a Yelp kind of thing. We happened to, someone locally, Mauricio, happened to mention something about it. And, uh, and you know, it wouldn't have been something that we would have found on Yelp. Do you or do you know anyone who uh, who has created a platform? Or if if it's not been created, it should be created to allow for these tiny niche and really authentic businesses or chefs, uh, individuals to kind of come to the surface so that people when they're traveling uh, or when they're not traveling, when they're in their own home, they can have an authentic experience uh, that is not Instagrammable necessarily. That is not, that's not being advertised on Instagram, but rather is something that they will have an authentic experience that can be a story. 
As much as I would love to say that there's something out there, I think that would kind of ruin the experience. One thing that comes to mind was I was in Hanoi, Vietnam, uh, what was it, March of this year, or March of last year now, sorry. And there's a very well-known dish that I cannot think of the name of for the life of me right now, but that's kind of famous in Hanoi. And Anthony Bourdain did an episode back in the day where he ate at this restaurant with Obama. And for for decades, this place was known to be the spot to go, right? And then once he did, did that, and it went out to the world, this place became so busy. There was lines out the door. I tried to go there three times, and they were out of food by 11 a.m. Wow. Because they, right? Because they just couldn't keep up. So in that, you know, looking for that experience, I started talking to some locals, which was as simple as I did a food tour, which is a cool way even for a chef to find like those little hole in the wall ones when you find just a private guy that's going to take you around and it's worth the 30 bucks to do. And he gave me like three different places that provided that same experience, but you don't find them on Yelp because once they get on Yelp and once they get that media out there, then it, in many cases, it becomes a matter of production and business and volume that takes away from the simplicity that makes it so amazing. So what is your opinion on on the Instagram or on the Yelp that that does advertise? I mean, in what it sounds like is that you're not a huge fan of it because it kind of reveals the secret. In my in my experience, I feel like sometimes when I'm seeing these beautiful, you know, food porn images on on Instagram or on the social medias, um it, to me, you're taking the time to take that photo and it's kind of taking away from the experience, the, the mindfulness experience of mm-hmm. when the server is bringing it and the smells and um, just how the dish looks with your own eyeballs in real time and the, you know, having it as it arrives to the table. So what, what is your opinion on, on the social media or on Yelp or on all of those? Shane kind of alluded to it, but I have lots of thoughts on social media. So as a chef um, coming up in the in the last decade or 15 years when social media has become such a huge part of the business, I was one of the early adopters of it and, you know, jumped on Facebook first because that was the platform that was out there and Twitter and put a lot of time into creating content around that to share it because it has, it, it was very interesting to me. What I learned is that was distracting me from the mindful experience that you're describing. So for me personally, nowadays, I I don't think I ever take a picture of my food unless it's something I'm cooking at home and I want to share some thoughts around that. But when I'm out eating, I make it a point to put my phone away and I give my dining companions a healthy dose of my opinion if they're, <laughs> if they're spending too much time on their phone, you know. And the fact of the matter to me is that I think people people do it to kind of have a humble brag, like, Hey, I had this great meal, but, and that's fine if you see value in it. But I don't think that pulling your phone out, taking a photo, posting it right then and distracting yourself from that experience really adds to life anymore. So personally, I used to put a lot of effort into it. I've had so many versions of blogs and YouTube channel and I really pulled away from it because for me, it was distracting my experience with food, which I ultimately enjoy that more than the feedback I get when I put it up on social media. 
it's perfect. It, it, it's it's very interesting. As someone in technology, I become very reliant on my phone as a portal to to work, to my friends, to my connections. It's my tour guide in strange cities that I'm visiting often to figure out where I want to go, where I want to seek out those authentic experiences. But I, but I've been trying to be much more mindful personally of the people around me and really. You know, it, I came up with the phrase, I think it was about 10 years ago, is, you know, mindless in the moment, or not, not mindless, sorry, mindful in the moment, regardless of the experience, because we are often mindless when our technology is in front of us. But the reality is, is, is we're using that as a way to connect with other people at the expense of the people that we're around. And if I'm interacting with someone on my phone, whether it's a, a voice call, whether it's a text or anything, I want to focus on them in that moment. But if I'm with people, if I'm around people, my dining companions, you know, I'm trying to be more mindful of not only my own experience in that moment, but the experience of other people. You know, they made the time to be with me. They made the time to sit with me and they deserve my attention. So uh, the other night at dinner, I had to check my phone for something because I got an alert on my watch or something that, that was you know fairly important. And before I picked up my phone, I looked at the, the people I was dining with and I said, hey, I'm sorry. I'm going to pick up my phone and do something right now because uh, I need to take care of it. But, you know, I'm trying to be much more mindful of doing that while I'm out with people, while I'm out with my wife, while I'm out with my family so that I can be in this moment. And they were completely taken aback that I actually said something about it because right now it's people grab their phones, they check their phones. And, it, and it's almost a muscle memory autonomous thing at this point where we think we hear a vibration or we hear someone else's alert go off that sounds like our alert and we need to check. Because some event has happened in the lives, and we're so Pavlovian at this point, trained <laughs> to respond to that, we get that endorphin hit. It's really hard to deprogram ourselves, and you know we can talk about this in a future episode. The entire concept of you know dark patterns and programming that drive psychological behavior to get you to do what the app developer wants you to do, rather than do the human thing that you should be doing. Hmm. So they're taking advantage of our nature, of our psychology, to get them to interact and ultimately to gather information from us that they can monetize or monetize our interaction with their application directly. Long story short. I'm trying to be more mindful, but it's hard as a society because that is our connection to every other person that's that's in our social fabric. And when we hear that alert, we assume an event has occurred. And it's usually somebody posting their picture of their lunch on Instagram. Right. <laughs> which I'd much rather sit and hear about that amazing experience than just see the picture. And to tell myself, I still take the pictures of the wonderful meal but I'm not posting them on social media as much because that's for me. That's if I want to go back and see that later and say, Oh yeah, I remember that was a great meal. You know, that's, that's for me now. So it's not for everybody else. Well, and it's interesting too, because there's actually a recent conversation I had with a, a work associate of mine and you know, there's a definite analog to what we're talking about. And, and that is how we connect through people and what value we place on that communication channel. The example that was given to me was on a recent trip to Mexico City uh, for work, he was looking for a place to have dinner. And his um, immediate gut instinct was to pull out his phone and to just Google, see what was around and go for whatever had the highest rating. But he almost accidentally 
started having a conversation with a local uh, about something completely unrelated. And the the topic of food came up and he was looking for a place to, to have dinner. And the conversation actually immediately switched to, hey, I know a place. You have to go check this place out. Because what he was looking for was tacos. Because uh, I'm not sure if people know this, but Montana is not exactly a Mexican food. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, you know, one of his goals was he wanted to have some really outstanding tacos. And uh, that came up in the conversation with this local. And he said, you got to come to this place. You're not going to find it on social media because it's a tire shop. Perfect. I love that. (laughs) Once, Once they close the doors on the tire shop, they switch it over and it's some of the best tacos in this part of town, but nobody knows about it except locals. So come on with me. We're going to have some tacos al pastor. And he said they they were just far and above without question, the best tacos al pastor he's ever had in his life. And I granted part of that is, is the experience. Well, yeah. But I mean, but, but he, you know, he's been around, he's well-traveled okay. and he's had good tacos, but he was definitely on a quest to find that. And had he not actually had a, uh, an analog conversation with a, an actual person, he would have never found this place. And so I find that, you know, kind of an interesting parallel to everything that we've been talking about here in, in, in that there's, you know, technology is definitely, uh, I think, a great tool, but it's not a substitute for actually connecting with people. It definitely kind of changed my perspective on it. And and after that, I actually had some conversations because I'm pretty new to Montana as well about great places to eat here in Missoula and found some places there that that I would never have found otherwise. And, uh, and you know, it definitely had a positive impact on me in the exact same way. So um, I think there's definitely a really valuable lesson to be learned there. Actually wrote a an ebook about that when I was traveling. And just a quick note: when I say traveling, I spent all of 2018 and the first basically half of 2019 traveling the world. Story for a different time, but I wrote a 10 page, I think, or 15 page ebook about how to find those hidden gems, and none of it has to do with technology, other than knowing what ingredients and what kind of food or what kind of cuisine is there and interesting before you travel. But uh, it's all about talking to people and where to find those people. You know, I, I know you said you're going to save that story for another time, but I'm going to drag part of that story into the kind of this next piece of the conversation. But you know, one of the things that we've talked a lot about the downside of technology here, and, you know, I, I want to give some credit to the technology that is that has helped bring some of this forefront and forefront and still, I think, in some ways helping You know, Yelp for all the, the bad rap they get. And it's a love hate relationship. I know in the restaurant industry, they do a lot of good. They do a lot of good community building. And, you know, shout out to the, you know, Michael Tragash and our uh, re- local Reno Yelp mm-hmm. community who consistently goes over and above to to bring together communities of people to and exposing small businesses and restaurants to the community, uh, he you know, he really does a good job, and I think as someone who lives in tech and you know considers himself a community builder, I, I appreciate it's the that's that you know game recognizes game moment where they do a really good job of building community. 
all the bad stuff aside, and we know there's, you know, there's shadow behaviors in there and there's things that they do to kind of, you know, drive revenue. They're a company, they're for profit and they're trying to do things, but you know, definitely want to give them credit for, for the community building aspect of what they do and connecting people to these businesses. But which brings me kind of to the, the piece that I'd like to talk about, especially in your travels for a few minutes here. Land, mm-hmm. I know we're, we're kind of getting up on time here. Let's talk about how technology has allowed us, especially us in the United States, us U.S., who I think less than 10% of the people who live in the U.S. actually hold a passport, and we're not particularly well-traveled outside of the U.S. What do you think technologies do to connect us to other cultures through food? I see a lot of positive benefits. I've learned a lot about the culture of other communities and other countries through my interest in their food. And and I've always found that once I know a little bit about their food, I can almost always make a very human connection with an individual if I make a reference to their food or ask them a question about their their food culture. How do you feel about that or what have you seen in your travels? Well, I totally agree. Um, I kind of alluded to it when I was talking about that book that I wrote, or e-book that I wrote. I think the cool part about that or the way that technology can be used as a big benefit is figuring out what the locals are eating, right? What the dishes are and what the ingredients are, the style of cooking before you head into a place. And it does make it very easy to make a connection with total strangers when you when you have a little bit of knowledge, but you want to know more, right? So for instance, we've talked about Mexico quite a bit. And I know we talked about Mexico City, but also the Yucatan. So Yucatan is a pretty cool place as far as the ingredients that they have there that aren't found anywhere else in the world and doing a little research in advance and heading in using technology for that, but then kind of using that as a seed to get those conversations going, I think is amazing. I was lucky enough to travel and use that and have all kinds of cool stories. If you know what kind of dishes you're looking for in advance and you start asking people, you make those connections. And as Matt said, you end up at a taco or a tire shop eating al pastor tacos that are very memorable. So when you're in the kitchen, mm-hmm. uh, and as you're as you're kind of conducting business, do you find that that plays a role in sort of your day to day approach to what you do? Does it negatively impact what you're doing in the kitchen? I mean, do do you ever do you ever think about? Do you ever catch yourself subconsciously saying, "Oh, boy, I wonder as I'm plating this dish, how's this going to look in an Instagram photo?" I mean, do you ever find yourself doing that? Uh, me personally. I don't think about it too much. It's definitely something to be considered. And partially, I'm not actively chefing anymore. I'm more in the, I'm on the food service side of the business now, or the, sorry, the supplier side of the business now. So I'm not in the kitchen as much. But in my current role, I am basically a consultant. And part of that is guiding restaurants to profitability, right? And the Instagrammable food is definitely a trend and something that people need to consider. But it's also part of what a chef does naturally, right? Everybody says you eat with your eyes first. I actually think you eat or you your first experience with your nose when the plate comes around, as Laura mentioned before. But chefs have done it con- you know, for decades. You've got to have a plate that looks nice, that is visually appealing at first. What's changed about that, I think, or what people are starting to dial in is putting something together that's a little bit over the top. I used the Starbucks, like what they call it, the unicorn drink, whatever they made that was pink and purple and blue. And it doesn't taste good, right? It's a bunch of nasty sugar and whatever, but it just blew up 
on social media because it was interesting and people bought it. I don't let that guide me personally, but it definitely has its place in the culinary world. Clint, thank you for your time today. We, we definitely appreciate it. I know you're a busy guy, and I'm, I'm glad you were able to spend uh, th this last hour with us. Absolutely. And I think we explored a lot of topics. If, if folks wanted to find you on social media, I know you like to keep a lower profile than in the past, but where, where are they going to find you? Where are they going to find your anti-social media, social media rant? <laughs> I love that. Um, <laughs> so I'm on all the platforms, and luckily I have a pretty unique name, Clint Jolly, so it's easy to find. On Instagram, Clint Jolly. On Facebook, I have a the Chef Clint Jolly page is still up there. And as you mentioned, I don't necessarily post often, but I try to be a little bit thoughtful. So hopefully you'll find some interesting stuff there. ClintJolly.com is the website. And I mentioned that book. There's a couple of little ebooks there if you scroll down to the bottom that are full of some fun stories or I think fun stories, some recipes, etc. If people want to want to dig in and learn a little bit more about me, that's where do they do it. Excellent. Thank you very thank much. You. Matt, Laura, thank you for another great show. Appreciate thank it. you, guys. Thank you all. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. On behalf of my fellow hosts, Laura Araujo, Matt Drew, and myself, Shane Carlson, we'd like to thank you for listening. Be sure and check out our website at www.techno-biotic.com and be sure to follow us on all the usual social media outlets. Until next time. Technobiotic.